Hello, and welcome to the Tartan Tardigrade. This is a podcast brought to you by the UK Centre for Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. In the podcast, we talk to astrobiologists from around the world about their research, their careers, and anything else that comes to mind. This week, we're joined by Peter Vickers from Durham University to talk about science, truth, and astrobiology. I'm Peter Vickers. I'm an associate professor uh, in the Department of Philosophy uh, at the University of Durham, and I've been there for nine years. And I work on all different areas of philosophy of science, but mostly on issues to do with uh, science and truth. So to what extent is science getting at the truth? Should we worry about future revolutions in science where lots of our current ideas change or should we think that most of our current ideas are probably getting at the truth pretty good already and will of course be adjusted but there won't be that many massive revolutions that sort of change everything like there have been in the past so i've got two projects going on at the moment one is a book project uh where the the book is provisionally entitled um identifying future proof science so the idea there is how can we, if at all, identify the scientific ideas today that we think are future-proof in the sense that we expect those ideas to pretty much still be with us in a thousand years? Um, so there's people who think that's crazy because we've had so many changes just in the last 200 years uh, in, so, in, in most fields. And there's people who think that, is, um, that most of our ideas will still be around in a thousand years because we've reached the truth in so many different areas. And um, we have good reason to believe that those things we think are true uh, are not going to change. That's sort of orthogonal to this other project, which is more relevant to uh, the UK Centre for Astrobiology. And that has to do with... um, So so some folk at NASA read this article I, I wrote, which was about misleading evidence. And it was looking at cases in the history of science where evidence was, in hindsight, it was misleading. So the scientists didn't necessarily make a mistake. They just followed the evidence. But then when they looked back later, they realized where they'd gone wrong. And the evidence had been misleading, just like it can be in everyday life. You know, you, you have reasons to believe X and then somehow, you know, Y is the case. But you still had good reasons to believe X. So it's not as if you made a mistake, you followed the evidence. And that can happen in science as in everyday life. So some folk at NASA read this article and they thought, well, are there ways in which we're being misled at the moment when we investigate the universe, when we look for exoplanets, uh, when we think about the the kinds of biosignatures which we should or could be looking for? So they invited me over and that led to sort of a new strain of research for me, which was thinking about to what extent we should support non-mainstream theoretical ideas and theoretical projects. Um, Because the thought is, if there are things out there which are highly unexpected, given our current theoretical ideas, well, if everybody's just pursuing those current theoretical ideas, then uh, no one is really allowed to pursue like radical ideas. Then if we are making a mistake, we we may not ever realise that. You know, it may be that we, we, we really need 
the, the 5% or 10% of people in the community to be working on more non-mainstream, more radical ideas. Because if you look back at the history of science, sometimes that 5% breaks through. And when they do, it's, it's a massive big deal. And everybody's glad that you know, somebody was working on that. Um, and uh, three, three, there's three examples I've looked at. I mean, there's lots of examples, if you look back a long way, but three examples in the last 100 years of that. Uh, continental drift theory, which was uh, thought to have been proved to be impossible um, for, uh, for at least sort of 40 years, between sort of 1920 and 1960. So everyone thought that was um, not worth looking at uh, at all. Um, another example was peptic ulcer disease and the bacterial theory of that, which was totally um, rejected for about 30 years between about 1950 and 1980. Um, and a third interesting example, which is just more recent, is... If you look back to sort of 1990, scientists were starting to say that uh, we know that an asteroid was responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs. But in the last couple of years, they've backtracked on that and said, um, actually, it's not as secure as we thought. It's still a good theory, but uh, we, we overstated it. Um, and it, you know, it could have been caused by um, volcanism. Um, in fact, the, the asteroid may have landed uh, thousands of years before the extinction. So so that's three examples, concrete examples, which sort of show that sometimes the, the very minority view needs to be supported because it may break through in the end. I think there's obvious applications to astrobiology there. I mean, when we're looking for signs of life in other places, we're always going in with some pre-existing idea of what we're looking for because you, you have to, to be able to look things. I mean, I, I don't know whether you've seen this example, but I've got a personal example in an astrobiological context. So when they were designing the Viking experiments, which, you know, at the time were very um, highly sophisticated life detection experiments, looking for existing life on Mars, incredibly exciting. Um, and the scientists who designed them had an idea of what they would see if there was no life and what they would see if there was life. And the results that actually came back were somewhere in the middle and no one knew what it meant or what was understood, what it could mean about life. Did it mean something else was going on? And only now, like, you know, 30, 40 years later, are people starting to piece that together. Whereas um, maybe if there had been some people at the beginning thinking of slightly more crazy ideas about maybe there's this weird chemistry in the soil or, or whatever, like, like you say, the fringe, um, it, it would have helped design the experiments or better understand the experiments quicker or things like that. Sure, yeah. Um, I, and there's, there's definitely a community dynamic which inhibits um, research which is non-mainstream, especially when there's only sort of, let's say, 5% of the community who think it's a good idea to pursue that hypothesis. Because if, 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 if anyone in that 5% puts forward a, a funding bid, it's, it's likely that everyone on the panel, the funding panel making the decision, will, will consist of people who don't think it's worth pursuing. Or even if just one person on the panel thinks it's worth pursuing, well, that, that, that proposal will be put forward alongside other proposals which are more mainstream. So, it's, so you've got the non-mainstream uh, projects always competing with mainstream projects, projects which everyone on the funding panel thinks are worth pursuing. Um, so it's really hard for those projects to, to break through. Um, 
and there's, there is evidence this, you know it's not just a this isn't just sort of a theoretical idea there's there are these concrete cases the one can find where re- research which was non-mainstream really was inhibited by the community um which um which which has a tendency to to sometimes to be conservative do you do you think that's exacerbated when there's for example funding shortages so you've got that general idea of of uh, the fringe breaking into the mainstream but on top of that they're even less likely to to break through because there's not enough money to go around yeah i mean so most uh fringe ideas probably won't come to anything um that's sort of almost by definition you know these are the ideas which have a lower probability of success people think so any funder would would have to fund them, uh, acknowledging that you know there is a good chance that they won't lead anywhere. And then when they don't lead anywhere, uh, if anyone says, "Why did you fund that?" they have to say, "Well, we always knew it wouldn't lead anywhere." You know, don't don't be too alarmed. Um, but but often, you know, the the funder is under pressure to sort of show that the funding is is uh, is going somewhere. In in every case. Um, and it, it's much easier for, for any funder to, to fund safe bids all the time so they never have that awkward question of someone saying, you put all that money into that project and it went, no, and it went nowhere. Um, how can you justify that when there were these other projects which almost certainly would have gone somewhere? Um, you know, the, the funder doesn't want that, don't, that question. So, it, and, you know, it's, there's a lot of pressure uh, on funders and 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 once the community knows that it's very easy for people in the community to self-censor and never even put in high-risk uh, proposals do you think there's a a role for the kind of charitable foundation side of scientific funding there as well because maybe there's a bit less pressure politically to succeed or produce particular impacts or outputs yeah i i think so i mean uh it's it's better when it's not a political issue, uh, certainly when you know. And um, the the idea is that you would fund these things regularly enough. I mean that uh, that occasionally one of them is going to break through, and then it, then it makes a big splash because it succeeded where most people expected it to fail, and that usually means it's more significant than those safe projects where everyone you know everyone expected them to make an incremental change you know, sort of low risk, low reward, uh, projects. Um, so yeah. Um, even if, if there is less embarrassment when, when a project fails, as long as a, a, a funding body is able to, to fund enough of those projects, it, it's, it's highly likely that, that some of them will succeed. And, and then hopefully when people look back on, on the whole, the whole lot of projects which were funded, um, the, the point of doing it will be crystal clear. So, yeah. How do you fu- future-proof science? Do you have an example of um, something from the past which still holds today, which you think is a good example of a future-proofed piece of science or how you would go about doing that now? Um, so, so one of my examples in, in the book, I have a chapter devoted to the theory of evolution. Okay. Um, and the question is, well, most people think that this, this is a true theory. Um, 
you know, there's, there's a massive consensus both within science and philosophy, um, philosophy of science, that the theory of evolution is, um, is true, at least crudely described. Everyone expects there to be adjustments here and there. I mean, the extent to which uh, evolution is driven by natural selection is an open question. You know, there are other mechanisms. Everyone thinks natural selection is at least one of the mechanisms. So, so there's going to be some adjustments. So the, uh, the idea is that you can describe what the theory of evolution says in a crude enough way that that you know that crude statement of it will still hold in a thousand years. So why why would why do we have this massive consensus? Somebody could say, um, think about the examples I've already given. Someone could say there was a consensus that continental drift wasn't true, um, and that got overturned. Or there was a consensus that the bacterial theory of peptic ulcer disease was false, and that got overturned. Um, so one thing you have to do is make a distinction between certain cases of consensus from the history of science and this new consensus about theory of evolution say, no, this one's different. Uh, this isn't like those. This isn't going to be overturned. Uh, trust me. Um, I mean, trust actually is really important in this because there's a massive body of evidence for evolution, but nobody can look at it all. Uh, and you have to trust other scholars. Um, you know, un unless you want to just say, look, I don't know. Uh, I've only looked at this bit of evidence and that bit of evidence. I mean, that that's one possibility. Someone could just say, I, I don't know. Uh, and they might say, everyone should say that. Everyone should say, I don't know. Because, you know, how much evidence have you looked at? But actually, science is, is all about trust, especially these days, more than ever before. Um, you know, there, there, were, there were millions of scientific publications coming out every year. And, and even, um, you know, the best scientists in the world only look at a small fraction of them. Um, so, so somewhere along the line, um, it's not only about evidence, it's also about, about trust. Um, and, I, and I think in the case of uh, the theory of evolution, my, my uh, tentative proposal at the moment is for the individual to make a decision on whether that's the future proof is to look at several of the most important examples of evidence, including both evidence for and allegedly against it. And then also to take into account the size and the nature of the consensus that exists and trust that that consensus is, uh, is, is, is an informed one. So there was the consensus that the dinosaurs were killed by an asteroid and now that's being questioned. Mm. And how much do you think that kind of consensus is actually like a scientific community consensus or how much of it comes from the way media portrays it to the public and then it's a public consensus? Mm. Like everybody knows that the dinosaurs were killed by the asteroid. Mm. And, and how much of it is to do with this concept of accuracy in science. You were talking about the fidelity of truth there in terms of evolution. So there could be adjustments to the idea that, uh, you know, evolution by natural selection is responsible for life as we see it. But when you're talking about what killed the dinosaurs, you know, you could phrase it in such a way as to be absolutely true in that some, some event happened in this time period that caused the dinosaurs to go exist. But obviously, how useful is that truth then 
um, in terms of its predictive capabilities and things like that. And then, you know, if you're talking about thousands of years variability and when the asteroid could have hit in a geological record and compare that to say the sheer biological diversity that we see on earth, which makes things very complicated to exactly precisely define when adaptations have happened and things. And then take that to astrobiology where we're looking at planets where there may be signs of life from millions of years ago, but you know, things have happened to them in the meantime you know, you're, you're wrapping in lots of layers of, uh, gradations of truth, really, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to, I mean, truths are easy. Uh, you know, you, you can say all, all sorts of truths, uh, that lack substance. Um, the, most of them are uninteresting. Um, so we're interested in, 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 in significant truths in science. And when it comes to the demise of the dinosaurs, you know, that, the, the big question, the significant truth comes when we have a causal story to tell. And scientists, I think, thought they had one that was secure. Um, it, it seemed from the beginning, really, that it was too much of a coincidence that, yes, around this time, there was an asteroid impact. And there's lots, there's, there's evidence for that. I mean, I think that's future proof that, you know, around that time, 66 million years ago or so, there, there was uh, an ast- a major asteroid impact. Um, and I think it's future-proof that there was a mass extinction event around, around that time. But there was also massive volcanism and the Deccan traps in India. Um, so, so it's about the causal story. And I think when people saw that the, you know, the, the asteroid and, and the extinction were sort of around the same time, it was... It, too many people were too quick to think that it couldn't be a coincidence, even though the error bars meant that they could have been a million years apart. Um, it seemed too much of a coincidence. Um, for most, But yeah, I mean, you asked about the media. Well, the main reason I call this a, a consensus is because in 2010, there was um, a, a big conference where 41 uh, leading scientists from countries around the world came together and decided to declare it a consensus. So it was pretty, uh, it was pretty clear. And then the media, of course, jumped on the back of that. Th- this was a rare, rare time, actually, um, in science, where where the scientific community decided to declare a consensus. And usually, you have to sort of pick it up from um, you know less explicit uh, claims and pieces of literature and publications and so on. So um, that, that, that's why that case is so, is so significant. To the extent to which there was a consensus um, is still unclear. I mean, there was 41 leading scientists. Each one of those scientists, I think, would say that they felt they were um, putting forward the consensus of opinion of their country or of their, of their sub-community. Um, so it's not just about 41 scientists, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. But um, I think it's fair to say that there was a consensus, whatever that word could, could reasonably be taken to mean. So just to kind of change tack a little bit, yeah. you told us a little bit about how you've come to astrobiology with these ideas of philosophy of science. But could you maybe tell us a little bit how you got into thinking about philosophy of science in the first place and, um, and doing what you do? I, yeah, I, so I started out, 
uh, I applied for a physics and space science degree at the University of Leicester. But at the last minute, I decided I needed to take a year out and, you know, uh, do some traveling and stuff. So on that year, I read a load of books and decided I really wanted to do philosophy because I was sort of interested in these deeper questions. But I, I guess my interest in physics and space science never went away, really. I, I ended up doing um, mathematics and philosophy joint honours at the University of York. The maths was very physics-y, though. You know, I did modules that were called like special relativity, quantum mechanics, and, and so on. So I, I never sort of left the, the science. And the people who, in the maths department at York were really interested in foundational questions like, you know, what does quantum mechanics really tell us about the universe? Questions like that. So they put me onto some people at Leeds where they had a, a really nice philosophy of science program. And I got into this history and philosophy of science sort of um, stream of, of research where the idea is you look at the history of science to learn lessons about how science should be done. Um, you know, when is science done better? When is it done worse? What examples are there of good scientific method, of bad scientific method? What mistakes have scientists made in the past? Can we learn something from them? So that became sort of my, um, broadly speaking, my my research area, um, sort of integrated history and philosophy of science, uh, as it's called, sort of um, learning from history. Um, but the idea really for me was always to bring it back to contemporary science and uh, hopefully learn some lessons which actually could make a difference. Um, so I never sort of wanted to just be a philosopher talking to philosophers. I think I always sort of wanted it to to actually be of interest to, to scientists. Had you heard of astrobiology before NASA got in touch with you? Yeah, I had. Um, um, but I certainly learned a lot more about it um, after they got in touch. Um yeah, I wasn't aware um, really of how far things had come, how fast since sort of, you know, the discovery of the first um, exoplanet orbiting a, a sun-like star in 1995. Um, I was 15 then. I, I didn't even realize at the time that that had happened. But yeah, that's. I mean, in in the last in the twenty years following that, there's just this crazy explosion of discoveries of planets. I had no idea that four thousand planets had had already been discovered, um, and that that had led to this this big increase in work on you know what would a biosignature look like. Um, so I I swatted up really on the um, on NASA's uh, NASA has published this document in 2018, the the Exoplanet Science Strategy. It's a very long document, and it talks about uh, a little bit about the different kinds of biosignatures. So, so that was sort of a crash crash course for me. From your perspective, how would you actually describe astrobiology? So, obviously, we we have our view of it, but as a maybe something of an outsider. How would you see it? Um, as much as I ad advocating non-mainstream research, I think uh, I am a bit of a conservative in a way because I, I tend to think that, um, for example, that we're not being um, too, um, what's that word? Carbon. Carbon-centric. Yeah, carbon, there's, there's another word. Anyway, 
chauvinist maybe i don't know anyway um yeah i so some some people have said you know we're looking at the one example we have and assuming that's out there but um but of course it's more it's more complicated than that there are there are many good reasons to think that carbon is the best basis for life and that even silicon which seems like the second best basis is you know there there were objections to to the possibility of that being a basis for life um but so i i i tend to think um that any advanced life that's out there um might be a little bit like us um because i you know i think natural selection uh will select a certain kind of um organism you know that 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 that's competitive uh, for example but you know uh, works in a team and so uh, and and there's lots of the traits that we have seem like they they were in a sense inevitable given the way that natural selection works um so I'm a conservative I guess when I think about advanced life that has been developed through through some kind of natural selection and my thought is that that natural selection really is is the is the only way to get from basic life to advanced life um uh, but um there's there's, a, there's an alternative interpretation of what you asked which is kind of how how we should think about life in the first place and there's there's a really nice paper actually called um why i stopped thinking about the definition of life and why you should too um, which looks at all these different definitions of life which have been put forward and argues that we shouldn't expect one of them to be correct um these are all good or reasonable definitions of life um and different fields have their own preferred definitions but but definitions should always be uh looked upon with suspicion nearly every definition that's ever been put forward is is imperfect you know definitions of justice definitions of knowledge uh and i think definition of life is no exception so i i i prefer the we'll know it when we see it uh, approach to uh, to life than trying to define what what life is so how does the the work you're doing relate to understanding life in the universe? Um so the work that I've been doing has been trying to find find a way to support non-mainstream research as as and when uh, appropriate. One one thing that um non not there are lots of non-mainstream or more fringe or more radical approaches to how life could develop or the 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 circumstances in which life could develop i heard recently of of people looking for life on venus for example and i i i think that's a fairly fringe uh project um now some of that's purely theoretical in which in which case it's it's very cheap um and so i've been trying to i've been trying to develop sort of uh, guidelines for how to have a good balance of different kinds of projects which are out there uh, when we think about low medium and high risk projects we also have to factor in the cost because there are low medium and high cost projects and then we also have to factor in the significance if successful because there are low significance projects medium and again high significance projects 
So the idea is to find a way to get the right balance between these three variables, uh, risk, uh, cost, and significance. Um, and one thing I've tried to do is, is to draw a, an analogy with, with financial invest, investors who, who um, like to advocate a, a balanced portfolio of, of low, medium, and, and, and high-risk investments uh, I think that analogy can be partially useful, but there's also important disanalogies when it comes to scientific investments. Um, so that that's been really where my research becomes most most relevant. Um, you know, thinking about really the the optimum way to have a, a division of labour uh, within the scientific community in order to make um, the best progress that that the community can. Um, and in order to ensure that we're, we're not missing things that are unexpected. Say you have not necessarily infinite, but a large amount of money. Would you fund everything or would you still have a quality filter? <laughs> yeah, that's a good uh, question. Um, so I, I believe in facts. I think there are things that we know. So I guess... Yeah, this is a good question. This, this question's been put forward uh, in the literature in philosophy of science. I was looking at this recently. So there's, there's this stream of literature in philosophy of science on division of cognitive labour in the scientific community. Um, it starts with the thought that the division we have surely couldn't be optimum because it's, you know, it's just sort of come about almost accidentally and organically, right? the, um, the division that we, that we have. It seems to work pretty well. But somehow it'd be unlikely that it was that it was optimum. Um, so I, th- I th- certainly think a spread is 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 correct. Where we we have these projects which are we're sure they're going to lead somewhere, and there are many projects like that. I mean, just think about the Kepler telescope, for example. You know, every everyone knew, uh, you know, at least ninety nine percent confidence level that it was going to find lots of planets. You know, there, there, there are these projects which are, are really safe and also will deliver significant results. It's not like all the safe projects only deliver low rewards. Um, so a lot of funding has to go to projects like that where they're safe. Uh, in, in, there's a very high probability they'll, they'll give you results. And also those results are a, a high reward as well, really significant. Um, and I, I think um, we it's tricky when you say, what about projects which go contrary to fact, with fact in scare quotes? Because if you think about continental drift, most uh, geologists in the 30s, 40s, even 50s would have said that continental drift research goes contrary to, to known fact because it, it was considered in, to have been shown to be impossible that the continents could move. Um so I think if if you really had a lot of money, you you would never you would you you would never sort of totally suppress research that goes contrary to fact in inverted uh, commas um, because um, there have been uh, cases like that where uh, the facts got overturned. Do you think that there is or has ever been life on Mars? Uh, my my gut feeling about about life is that it, it probably does come about when you have 
um, a certain set of conditions. And, it's, and it seems to me that there is very good evidence that, that there were such conditions on Mars uh, at one time, um, you know, a couple of billion years ago, or I'm not sure of the time frame exactly. Um, so if I had to say yes or no to has there ever been, I would have to say yes, uh, I think. Um, and I think also we have very good evidence that there has been exchange of material between Earth and Mars. Um, I think we know beyond reasonable doubt that there has been Martian material that's reached Earth. Um, and I think vice versa is highly probable as well. And that exchange, I think, increases the chance. Um, so is is there still life on Mars? Um I, I tend to think that there's a good chance that there's some kind of life still on Mars, uh, if uh, given that I think there once was. Um, and the way that we have constantly been surprised at how life can hang on in the most unlikely conditions, um, then we ought to think that there may well be some kind of life still there. And how would you react if we found definitive evidence that there either used to be or is still life on Mars? I, I guess I would be very excited. On, on the other hand, I suppose if it if it looked very like some of the weird kinds of life you can find here on Earth, uh, that would reduce how excited I was. I mean, I, I get excited when I find like examples of life here on Earth that either used to exist, so we have you know fossil evidence uh, coming through for these really weird kinds of life that no one thought ever existed, or life that exists right now uh, in, in, in extreme circumstances, which to all intents and purposes looks like very alien life, but it's here on Earth. So the, the, the difference, I suppose, uh, and finding it on Mars, um, if it was no more strange than those examples I've just been talking about, I, it'd be kind of cool, but, uh, but maybe um, you know, not so different from those examples. Okay, well, thank you very much for you. Yeah, thank you. It's great to chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Tartan Tardigrade. If you'd like to find out more about the UK Centre for Astrobiology or astrobiology in general, you can visit our website at astrobiology.ac.uk. You'll also find links there to the other episodes of the podcast and a link where you can subscribe via the University of Edinburgh podcast service.